Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. No rap, no song this morning, just a plain old goodly morning. Yeah, it's still a goodly morning though, isn't it? I mean, even without the jingle... It's a goodly morning, but just not the goodliest, but still goodly. Still quite goodly. I think you have to save those little jingle things for for special occasions. Otherwise, they become, you know, people would expect them. You put too much pressure on yourself. What kind of a jingle am I going to come up with after a 1-0 win over Huddersfield, I would think to myself if I thought about it, which I didn't. But there you go. Those are not problems we want to give ourselves. You don't want to jumble the jingles in with the everyday. Exactly. You know, keep them special. Exactly. Do not jumble the jingles. It's like Ghostbusters. Don't cross the streams. Don't jumble the jingles. So there you go. Absolutely. How was your weekend? It was good, actually. Yeah, I went to the game on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to Dan, Ask Us listener Dan, who was ahead of me in the queue and bought me a pint. Oh, very voluntarily. nice. Wow. Yeah, very, very very, very nice. Um, what else to say? And then after that, yesterday... Oh, yesterday I went to pantomime. I went to see a oh, panto no, in Bristol. Oh, no, you didn't. Very good. It was quite astonishing. It starred uh, Gok Wan. Are you aware of Gok Wan? Is he the designer guy? Yeah, the sort of fashion man. Uh, right. He was the fairy Gok mother oh, in Cinderella. And uh, Buttons was played by Brian Connolly. Um if you're not aware who Brian Connolly is, he was sort of famous in England in the 90s uh, for doing sort of comedy. It was just extraordinary. I haven't really... <laughs> you know, like Panto is something you're sort of culturally aware of, but I'd never really actually been to it and experienced it. Yeah. And it was absolutely astonishing. It's sort of like going back in time, really. It is. Um, a bit, yeah, it's quite a tradition. It's here as well. They pantos every year, uh, pantomime right. every year, uh, Cinderella, all those little red riding and whatever it might be. Um, yeah, they, they, they do them here every Christmas. Very popular. Kids seem to like them. I find them a bit weird and creepy, I have to say. There's an element to it that I don't quite get on board with. There was a lot of creepiness in it yesterday. Like, <laughs> particularly there was this sort of bit with Brian Connolly where he sort of did audience interaction with this woman in the front row and it seemed like it went on too long. But mm. everyone's laughing, but you're like, this is weird. Like, there's something odd going on. And the sort of odd talking over the kids' heads to the parents, like the nudge, nudge, wink, wink stuff is like... Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But anyway, listen... A fun time was had by all and sundry. What about you? How was your week? Uh, it was fine. Nothing to nothing to compare with pantomime. That's for sure. Uh, Are you not into? Basically, I'm into the period of my year where every weekend or is 
packed with Christmas stuff already. I don't know if you're experiencing that yet, but that's Sort me. of, sort of. Yeah, it's beginning to happen. Actually, we did have the annual uh, Lads Night Out on Friday night, which was quite good. So uh, feeling oh, right. a little bit delicate on, on Saturday. But uh, obviously the, the pantomime of the Premier League cheered me up uh, in the Lovely. end. In the end, as Arsenal got textbook over textbook podcasting for me there. Sure is, it? sure is. It's as, it's as if we've done this before. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's move on to, to football because that was the thing that brightened our weekend. And Lucas Torreira, his acrobatics saved the day against Huddersfield. Everybody was just a little bit more in love with Lucas Torreira than they were before the game, which was, I think, after the Tottenham game, quite a lot already uh, it's off yes. the scale now i think the the uh, the the love what what do you call it the love machine fest. the love fest All right uh, yeah love machine yeah. i think yeah that's a different thing altogether um but look he he had a very big impact on the game in the end but let's start at the beginning which is usually a good place to get things going and the team selection from unai emery the formation the system were you a bit surprised by it? Because I have to say, I was. I thought he might yes. go to four at the back. I thought against a team like Huddersfield at home, we might be a little more um, adventurous, perhaps, with our team selection. I, I, you know, you could say, okay, he picked two strikers. He picked Aubameyang and Lacazette together, but he also picked five defenders and three defensively-minded midfielders, I guess you would say. It's not like he was playing three... Who's the archetypal defensive midfielder who doesn't do anything but pass the ball sideways? Who's that guy? Uh, who? Think El of Nenny? Maybe. Yeah. Okay, maybe, yeah. Um, so it wasn't three El Nenny's. You know, there's, there's, there's a bit more to our midfielders than that, but in that system, in that formation, I just thought it was a bit of a surprise that he didn't, he didn't pick one more attacking player in place of one defensive player for me. Yeah, I I thought he would stick with the back three. That's not what surprised me. What surprised me was entirely dispensing with the bit of the team sort of between the midfield and the attack. Mm. Uh, You know, without Ramsey and Ozil, who are both unavailable, having no Mkhitaryan, no Iwobi in that starting eleven. I thought that was uh, a big surprise. And I, 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 yeah, I mean, look... A lot of the times with you know Emery, we've looked at the second half of games and thought, well, you know, he deserves credit there. He's seen the problems in the game uh, and he's he's fixed them. But then sometimes it's like, well, were the problems slightly of his own making? And I do think that this was one where you can look at it and say, I'm not sure he got his starting eleven for this match quite right. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it is one of the things that we've talked about a bit is, you know, making halftime yeah. changes is... A positive thing in some ways from a manager because it shows he's decisive and he's he's figured out this is not working. I mean, you could see, I don't know if you could see it from where you were, but certainly on television towards the end of the first half, they showed Emery and Juan Carlos Carcedo in very uh, intense conversation. So you knew that he wasn't happy with the way things were going, that the likelihood of halftime changes were were pretty high. The other side of that, though, is that if you make two changes at halftime, you you sort of um, restrict your ability to alter the game further should something happen, mm. like, for example, a player getting injured. And I think we saw um, something in the, in the Mustafi incident um, where we were probably not going to bring on another defender had Mustafi stayed fit. We would have, I imagine, brought on Eddie Nketiah to mm. give us a, an extra goal threat. 
But uh, when Mustafi got injured, we didn't have a sub ready. So there was that period of time where we had to play with 10 men, maybe two or three minutes while Monreal or Koscielny um, got ready. In the end, he went for Monreal. So you are a little bit restricted then because you, you we were in a situation where we're chasing the game. We need a goal. And the only change we can make is uh, a defensive one. So there is that element to it as well. It's a risk. There's a gamble. It's calculated. He's made those decisions, but it can come back to to hurt you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he, he did it, of course, to great effect in the the Spurs game, and he's done it again here. But I do think a double change at half time is not something you want to make a habit of. I do think that suggests, you know, that you're having to correct something that's that's gone a bit wrong, really. And I think that it does leave you very vulnerable to one injury, you know. Yeah. And it's suddenly like that's you're all out of options at that point. So as much as I enjoy Emery being decisive, and I think the half time changes have worked well, I think the double the double substitution is something you only want to keep really for emergencies but just to go back to the starting 11 I think the part of the problem was it with it was that every match preview I read uh, indicated that Huddersfield were going to sit off and, and defend deep against us and I think we were probably quite surprised by their approach not that they were necessarily attacking us a great deal or creating chances but they were pressing really really high yeah. uh, and I think that caused us a lot of problems you know such an integral part of our play has been building up from the back the interplay between Leno and the central defenders and I think the absence of Rob Holding who I think is probably one of our more adept passers at centre half and just the sheer pressure they were putting us under gave us a lot of problems and Juan Carlos actually spent a long time in the first half I could see chatting to Leno and at every break in play Leno would come over and mm. get more instructions and I think they they couldn't even figure out a way really to get out of our half at times. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there was a lot of energy to the Huddersfield performance, which uh, I think in the end cost them because towards the end of the game, we were able to push them further and further back and uh, and put some pressure on them. And that's where the goal came from. But yes, certainly in that first half, they did press us very high. They pressed us in a really organized way as well. So we did find it hard to get out. And I think when you're playing a system where you don't have an Iwobi or a Mkhitaryan to give you something a little bit wider on the pitch than, than the players we had up front, it can be a little um, challenging. You know, you can switch it wide to your wing backs, and they're the guys who are supposed to give you width, but it's getting the ball between the lines as well. And they were... In fairness to them, I think Emery said they fouled a lot, they disrupted our rhythm, which is fine. You know, that's that's what you've got to expect when you play a team like Huddersfield at home. They are going to do that. They are going to, to cause you problems. They're going to make life difficult for you the same way that we should do the exact same thing to any opposition that we play. Make life difficult for them and disrupt their rhythm and be cynical. That's the way they operated. Uh, it's up to the referees. I'm sure we'll talk about the ref in a few minutes. Um, you know, we, we have to learn how to deal with that. And I, I assume that was part of why he made that halftime change, the double change. Um, you know, the 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 one for Licksteiner, uh, whoever came on for Licksteiner, whether it was Mkhitaryan or Iwobi, I don't know, but that you can understand because Licksteiner was on a, uh, he was on a booking, but it was perhaps the withdrawal of Lacazette that I found a little bit strange. There was no mention afterwards of an injury or anything like that. Perhaps he was feeling that groin strain that he's had for, for a little while though, but we'll come back to the, the, the changes themselves. We did have chances in that first yeah, half, though. That's the thing. You know, it wasn't our most fluid attacking performance, but we did have really good chances. Aubameyang 
from Xhaka. Xhaka, I think, was taking a shot with his right foot, Same. and it just it yeah. just came to Aubameyang. I think he should do better there. I think you can reasonably expect him to do better. Uh, you know, I know it's coming at him at speed, and he's got to divert it. Uh, I don't. I'm not saying it's an easy chance, but it's one I would expect him mm. to hit the target with. I, I do think the Lacazette chance that followed it shortly afterwards was a better one, really. I mean, I think he'll be really disappointed with with what happened there. Yeah, he slipped. I think he kept saying on the commentary, yeah. he kicked it off his own foot. I don't know who it was. It was some guy who didn't sound like that at all. That was a really bad approximation. No, of I don't know who Jackson. it was either. <laughs> I, I've watched it on uh, on highlights. I thought he was, you know, quite engaging but I've no idea at all who it was yeah. but yeah Lacazette's feet sort of went from under him didn't they yeah. as he went to hit it it was there was an element of a John Perry or John Perry John, I'm mixing up John Terry I, mixing <laughs> up John Terry yourself to say it exactly and Katie Perry that's who I'm mixing up imagine wow. no, uh, what a celebrity uh, union that yeah. would be oh gross that is disgusting I'm going to have to photoshop that later for, for everybody's delectation <laughs> but it was a, a touch of that the way he slipped when he hit the ball he ballooned it over the bar um, mm. And what else happened in that first half? There was something else that happened that I thought was significant, probably not long after that. I'm just going back through the live blog here. Uh, you might notice that I haven't uh, taken any notes. Um, oh, no, that was it. That was basically, oh, of course, what am I talking about? There was the goal. There was the goal. The, the, the lack of goal. goal. Yeah. Which should have been a goal. I mean, what was that? I mean, I so I've watched it several times, and I uh, listen. This isn't this isn't great from me, but I have to hold up my hands and say I don't know if that should be a goal or not because I don't understand that rule p- properly anymore. Right about phase and first phase and second phase. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what's your take on it? My take is that we he was offside, barely offside, when the when the pass was made. Yeah, and then they had control of the ball. Um, I think I have one here. Uh, Jonathan Lou's match report, and this comes from uh, Jonathan and Shane on Twitter, who's at T G E I S H to Gish. I don't know how you pronounce that. Anyway, he says uh, he takes a snip from Jonathan Lou's match report for the Independent. It was a poor decision. Lacazette hadn't been interfering with play, and under Law 11, hadn't gained an advantage from being offside. I mean, how long does offside last? How long does advantage last? You know, they had clear control of the ball. He wasn't offside when the guy played the ball back to his goalkeeper. Mm. So I think that should be a goal. I think it should have been a goal. My first reaction was goal, um, and my first reaction on seeing the replay was was goal too. But yeah, I, I mean, look, the officiating on the day—I'm sure we'll get onto it. Well, we're onto it now, mm. aren't we? Was was pretty poor. I thought the general standard was pretty poor, and I think you know the, we talked about Huddersfield's energy and their pressing, but their fouls were a big part of that too. And I think the referee's failure to properly police that in the first half did lead him to slightly lose control of the game. I mean, there was a frantic period of bookings, wasn't there? And it just seemed like it was slipping beyond him. Yeah, it did. I mean, there was a weird booking on Xhaka. Uh, We have a question about this later on, so I don't want to get into the ins and outs of all the bookings yet. But, you know, three Arsenal Arsenal players booked, four Arsenal players booked, actually, in the first half. Xhaka, Mustafi, uh, Socrates, and then Licksteiner. Yeah. 
but he did look like he was losing control because that foul on Torreira from behind by Williams, the one that Licksteiner reacted to, which I was very pleased to see, by the way. Uh, you know, we've we've got to stick up for our players and we've got to stick up for the little guy. You know, he's only five foot five. He is brilliant and he's tough and he's robust and everything else. But when a guy sighs through the back of a, a five foot five midfielder, uh, you know, you want your players to stick up for him. And I was really glad to see that from Licksteiner, even if you do worry sometimes that he is a, he is a, a bit too keen to get involved, um, mm. you know, but 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 the referee I thought looked out of his depth. He made some odd decisions, and I think halftime came at the right time for the referee. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Just coming back to Lacazette, I was also surprised he went off. I actually thought of the two strikers, I thought he was sort of more useful to the team in the first half because without that is kind of a Wobi or Mkhitaryan linking player. There were a couple of moments where he at least was able to kind of... We were forced to go long quite often and he was able to bring the ball down and try mm. and bring others into play. Uh, and also he's played less football than Aubameyang. In theory, he's fresher. Um, and I thought that would be a factor in him staying on. I thought he'd probably get more playing time in this game than Aubameyang would. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe there's an underlying physical problem. That's what I'm, I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that the injury played a part in that substitution. I think. Mm. I, I've got no evidence for that. We haven't heard anything about Lacazette being injured. I don't think he was asked about it after the game, but it would make more sense to me that he was injured uh, and it was a precautionary change rather than simply a tactical one because of what we spoke about earlier on because you restrict your ability to influence the game later on and you put yourself in a position where an injury means you've used all your substitutes you've got no other way of changing the game beyond sort of shuffling players around on the pitch that are already there so it makes more sense to me that um that it was in some way related to his uh to his physical condition so the second half, I mean, what it looked maybe early on like Iwobi and Mkhitaryan were going to have a, a, a positive impact. I think they combined quite early in the second half and Mkhitaryan took a shot which went wide. But I don't know yeah. that they really were able to influence in, uh, the game in the way that Unai Emery wanted. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think individually they didn't have great games. Iwobi, his first few Apart from that one you just mentioned, his first few touches after that were pretty loose, weren't they? And mm. uh, certainly where I was sat, it sort of was one of those performances where you could kind of feel the crowd not getting on his back, but having that, that bit of tension when he received the ball of, oh God, his, you know, what's going to happen? Yeah, his time? first touch wasn't great a few times and, and you could yeah. sense that was, yeah, when the ball was coming to him. I mean, the thing about Iwobi is that he can do so much good on the ball and he can hold it up and he's strong and he's physical and he can he can burst through the lines and then he, I mean, there was a perfect example of that where I think he picked the ball up, he rode a couple of tackles, uh, he won the ball back, it was slightly getting away from him, he burst down the left hand side and there was a I'm not saying a simple pass but a relatively easy pass to Kolasinac between yeah. two defenders and he just played it straight to the defender and I think that's where people get a bit frustrated with Iwobi you know that the end product isn't there I mean you can't I don't think you can fault him for effort or endeavor or his willingness to work or his willingness to run you know there were moments uh, where he won us corners with his running he won us throws deep in there half with his running 
He did well right at the death where we were trying to keep the ball deep in their half. He did well there. You know, it's the it's the end product, which I guess is still a bit of an issue for a player who is, what, 22 years of age. You know, you can somewhat forgive that a little bit. And when you look back on the season of these 19, 19 appearances, five assists and one goal, it's not brilliant, but it's not bad either. Five assists, you know, three in the Premier League, two in the Europa League. You know, it's not a bad return for a player who's in and out of the team a little bit, you know. Um, Mkhitaryan, on the other hand, has got, um, what have we got, three assists and two goals from 18 appearances from Mkhitaryan. And I think you have to judge the two players slightly differently. One is 22, the other is 29. One is on a relatively low wage, the other is on a massive uh, 200 grand a week salary. That there is an expectation and people can dislike this or not dislike this, whatever they feel like. But when you have a high salary, there is an expectation that you're going to perform to a certain level. And I don't know that we're getting that necessarily from from Mkhitaryan this season. Um, And I can see why Emery likes him and I can see why his running and his energy is useful to the team. But I think we have to start looking at what he's producing. And I don't know that he's producing enough for for what we're giving him. so no, I, I would I would agree with you certainly on Mkhitaryan. On Iwobi, I agree as well that he had a poor technical performance, but I actually thought that tactically he did kind of do what he was introduced to do. I mean, so much of our attacking play in the last few weeks has been about Kalasinac. Um and in the first half, I think he just didn't have enough on that side of the pitch to interplay with. Mm. And it, we overloaded massively on that side in the second half. So we had Iwobi kind of playing, you know, just inside as that sort of loose number 10 from the left. Genduzi was playing right out on the left flank for yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. Partly covering for Kalasinac, I think, who was ahead of him most of the time, but also as another option to potentially play him in. And although we, the goal didn't, come from a Kalasinac run, it looked like if we were going to break them down, that was probably going to be the way. So uh, as, as as poor as Iwobi was at times, I could see the sense in Emery putting him on to kind of create that overlap. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, a good performance from him. But, you know, I think he's 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 been very good for the most part of the season. He might be experiencing a, a little dip now, but as you intimated with the young players, that is what you get. So Aubameyang had a chance. He missed at the back post a header again. I think he should have done better with that. Um, but as... Yeah, this, I mean, go on. He, he scored 10 goals, Aubameyang, and I, I think he could have scored more this season. You know, I, I said that on Twitter and got into a massive row about it. <laughs> but I, I think that, like, the the brilliance of him is that he he finds so many goal-scoring opportunities. His movement is exceptional and his pace is so difficult to live with. Mm. But I don't think this season... I know there's that stat that every shot he's had on target, 10 consecutive shots on target went in or something like that, but several went off target in that time, you know, they went wide or over. I I don't, it's very hard to be critical of a guy who is our leading scorer, leading scorer in the Premier League. When you look at the stats, you know, the the amount of involvement he has in goals, I mean, he he got the assist, you know, you, you can't be critical of him and I don't mean to be in any way critical of him, but I think it was quite telling last week when Unai Emery spoke about how he wants him to improve. And to be even better. And I think, I I don't think that's unfair. I think the potential is there for him to be better and to score more and to, you know, improve his conversion rate. Is Aubameyang above or below his XG this season? Somebody can tell us that. Scott, if you're listening, can you tell us that, please? Um, you know, I, I, I see 
everything good that he does, but I also think there's the potential for him to be better. I don't think it's being critical to point that out. You're not saying he's shit or useless or rubbish yeah. or anything like that, but when a, a striker as good as him misses chances the way he's missed chances, it's okay to point that out and say, look, maybe he could just you know, improve in his efficiency in front of goal. Is it asking too much? Maybe it is. I don't know. But, you know, I see the guy and I see his ability and I think he could score more goals. That's all. Yeah, I I mean, I I think he's... And at times he looks so good and so composed in front of goal. I think that probably the reason the misses stand out is that they come as something of a shock. You know, you expect him to score Mm. in those situations, a player of that calibre. Like that header, for example... uh, was a great chance. I mean, even if you're not going to score, you know, put it back across the box, you know, make yeah. something happen. Um, and in the second half, you know, it wasn't like chances were easy to come by. I mean, no. it's not a game where their keeper was having an outstanding performance. He made a good save in the first half, didn't he? Lost all from Torreira from range, but yeah. I can't think of too many others in the course of the No, there was a couple of weird, mo- a couple of dangerous crosses. There was one he saved with his feet for some reason and the ball squirmed away and Aubameyang was, was on his knees at that point. And there were a couple of other, there were a couple of other um, good balls into the box, which didn't quite come to, uh, to, to yeah. chances, but I thought what was good was the way we forced them back more and more and more. You know, it was classic, end game Arsenal we were playing the game in their half we did have to be alert defensively Monreal made a great interception at one point to prevent some real danger as they looked to break but you know we piled on the pressure and eventually the goal came Genduzi with a good ball to the back post Aubameyang's first touch was excellent he got a little bit of luck I think with the second touch where the ball came back to him put it in the middle and who's there but Lucas Torreira with a, a scissors kick um overhead kick whatever it is it was acrobatic and it was sensational and if anyone was going to win the game for us uh, it was him because simply because he's 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 becoming that kind of a player isn't he? he's becoming so integral to what we do it just felt like he was the guy who was going to make the breakthrough it did and you know i think this uh, little bit of goal threat to his game is a a really useful weapon i mean think of the goal he scored against Spurs, think of this goal. And I can think back, he, he nearly scored at Old Trafford, didn't he, with a decent effort. Mm. Similar one against Liverpool from the edge of the box that was turned over. There are a couple of more long-range efforts against Spurs that were pretty close. He said the know, post really de- this season as yeah, well, if yeah. I remember, yeah. He, he's developing into... Uh, that was against uh, Bournemouth, I think. He's developing into a real all-round midfielder. And I thought his deployment in this game was... Interesting. I mean, there were times when I was not sure about it. We played with a midfield three with kind of Shaka as the deepest and I thought Shaka had a good game, but there were times where I thought maybe Torreira in there would cope better with the press that, that Huddersfield were putting on him. Yeah. And he was kind of playing as the sort of right side of the midfield three and getting forward a lot. Uh, I suppose against Huddersfield, maybe you can you can afford that. But the way he popped up in the box and the way he took the chance was brilliant. I mean, everyone's talked about how he began his career as an attacker and there was one moment in the first half where you saw it where he picked the ball up on the right wing and uh, skipped past his, the full-back like a, like a proper old-fashioned winger. Yeah. But this was a great take. I mean, and a, yeah, look, I mean, the celebration echoes of the derby a week before. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant goal. A great way to win it. And all of a sudden, all the time-wasting that Huddersfield had done 
uh, was sort of coming back to, to bite them in the arse a little bit. It was one of those where I was going, oh, it's definitely, uh, you know, uh, before we scored the goal, I was going, they're going to give us about four minutes of, of uh, injury time here. And then as soon as we scored, I was going, it's going to be about eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was we seven. scored too early. Yeah, we Classic problem. <laughs> but, you know, it was a, a brilliant way to win it. And I think just reward for the pressure that we put on them in those final stages, you know? They had yeah. probably expended as much energy as they could have in that first period, maybe in the first hour of the game, where I thought in the second half as well, their press was um, was well-organized as well. But eventually they got a bit tired and sat deeper and deeper, or we pushed them back deeper and deeper. And if you do that and you get a ball into the box and you cause danger, then you know, something might break for you, and it did, and it broke in spectacular fashion. It might easily have just have been a poke or a toe poke home or whatever, but uh, to score in that way was was absolutely brilliant. Um, we hung Great on. Great work in the build-up, too. Just I would have thought yeah. I'd say, but, like, Gunduzi's ball is actually a really good one. At a yeah. time when, you know, we weren't creating a bundle of chances, you know, he found a pass over the top of the defence to Aubameyang, and it's, it's not the first time this season he's played that pass. We've seen it from him mm. a few times. I think there was a goal in the Europa League where he just found someone uh, and they uh, they scored, I forget who, or maybe the Capital One Cup, but yeah. he, he has got that pass in his locker, that sort of cross-field chip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Aubameyang did brilliantly as well to set it up. I mean, it's a great take. And his chip across the box is perfect, isn't it? I mean, you know, even if Torreira's not there, someone rushing in on that's got an open goal, essentially. So yeah. good work in the build-up, but a great take. And Torreira had, we according to the stats, we had two shots on target in the game. So we owe them both to Lucas Torreira. Uh, and Huddersfield, to be fair, had none. And so, you know, for all their defensive work, mm. we never really looked in massive danger at the other end. And I thought Bern Leno did pretty well when the ball was in the box. I thought he was a bit better in, in that respect. He came and punched a couple of things and uh, dominated in those situations. So they didn't really create anything. No, they didn't. I mean, I think we gave them a couple of moments of danger. And I have to say, I thought Granit Xhaka's performance all round was really, really good. Probably as impressive defensively as I've ever seen him uh, in terms yeah. of his defensive discipline, his positional discipline, his uh, the way he won the ball from set pieces and corners, his clearances. He was in the right place at the right time most of the time. Uh, and it was really impressive. But there's just something... Uh, he has this ability to whether it's switching off or whether he's just not making the right decisions in our final third. There was one where he passed the ball straight to a, a Huddersfield player on the edge of our box and they had a really good chance. I think it was in the first half. And there was another one where he got caught in possession in our half, which led to some danger. I don't think it was quite as dangerous as that first one. So there is this weird thing with Xhaka where there is improvement in his game and he can play really, really well for 98% of what goes on. But there's a 2% chance that he might just put you in danger. So um, I thought that was really where their only danger came from. Other than that, we defended pretty well. The centre halves were grand. Uh, the, the thing about it is, of course, we've got two yellow cards for Socrates and Mustafi, which means they're suspended yeah. for our next game. We'll talk about that in the next part after the questions. Um, but what else? Any overall, overall. This game, I, I suppose what I would say is that it felt a bit like a game at the end of what's been quite a gruelling yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, I know, as Emery said, we lacked rhythm. It wasn't great on the eye, really, at any point. But I think it really was about just grinding out the result. And I think it's to the team's credit, really, that they got over the line and that they did that. And I think, you know, as much as there was a bit of disappointment, perhaps after Old Trafford, because we felt we had a chance to really go there and stick it to them, I think when you step back... And you look at the three games and you take seven points from them, I think Mm. you've got to be really pleased with that. I agree. There are some days you're going to have to grind out a result. And one of the things that we've seen this season from from this Arsenal is that they're capable of doing that, that they are capable of winning games when they're not playing well. And Mm. I think we all want the balance perhaps to be a bit more tilted in the in the, the the half of performance, right? We want to see better performances coupled with good results. But until such time as we can sort out some of the problems that we have, I'm okay with the results. I think it wasn't a great performance. I saw some people on Twitter being very unhappy. I, I remember somebody uh, in my timeline or somebody retweeted somebody into my timeline going, this is not good enough. Well, you know, we won. That's good enough. That is good yeah. enough. Losing or drawing that game, okay, you might have a point. And you can make a, a, a reasonable point about the level of performance or how we set up in the game or how we played. But it was a North London derby, then a game at Old Trafford, and then we have a home game against a team who are down near the bottom of the table, who are going to work hard, who are well-organized, who pressed us, who made life really difficult for us. And we came away with a win and three points. And mm. to me, that's all right. It's not going to be flowing, beautiful football Every single game, uh, particularly this early in the the reign of a new manager who is still coming to terms with a lot of things and has you know significant issues with his personnel and his team to sort out in the long term. But in the short term, if we're coming away from that game with a win, on the back of a win in the derby, and uh, a draw at Old Trafford, which, despite some frustration, I think was a uh, is a decent result by any context and on paper and everything else. I think it's a, a decent result, despite how foolish the goals we conceded were. I think we can be pleased with our week's work. There are some issues and some downsides, of course. The Rob Holding injury, I think, is a, a huge shame. Uh, we were worried about that, of course, but it's uh, it's confirmed he's out for the rest of the season. I think that's a massive yeah. blow. That is a massive blow, isn't it? Because Holding had, under Emery, become basically the first choice central defender, whether we were playing in a two or a three. Yeah. And and as I touched on earlier, I do think that was largely because of how good he'd been on the ball. I mean, I think he made a difficult position as that left-sided centre-half look easy at times, uh, especially in the three. You know, he had to gallop up the pitch. He had to play in Kolasinac. He had to interact with Iwobi. He found himself doing all sorts of awkward things on the ball and I think looked very calm, very composed throughout. And actually, you know, I, I like Socrates. I think he's a really good defender, someone who clearly loves defending. He's a pure defender, really. But when I see him uh, on the ball, on that left side of the, set, of the centre-halves, I don't feel as relaxed. I don't feel as comfortable. I think he looks a little bit less secure maybe and a little bit less comfortable going forward so you know losing holding is a big blow and I think may give Emery you know some possible reconsideration on the back three Uh, but what I would say just about this Huddersfield game as well is if you didn't like it I would tune out for the next month because the Christmas period 
is famed for this sort of game. You know, it's it doesn't for all the celebration of festive football, it doesn't produce lots of thrillers. The games can be quite dour and quite uh, what's the word? They're a bit of a grind at yeah. times because well, there's are. so many of them. Yeah, exactly. You know the the. This idea that you can produce top-class performances when you're asking players to play every three days, sometimes uh, you know two games in 48 hours, it has an impact yeah. on the quality of the football. Of course it does. You know, so on the one hand, the Premier League want to market themselves as the best league in the world, but they don't do enough to ensure that the quality of games is as high as it should be. You simply can't expect players to play I think we've, we'll have played 11 games between the 25th of November and the 29th of December in all mm. competitions at Carabao Cup Europa League Premier League it's a huge amount of football we're seeing the effects of that on the squad in terms of little injuries here and there muscular problems players are going to get aches and strains we've had an unfortunate injury to, to Rob Holding which I think is just one of those things which can which can happen a player lands badly it was almost the same way that Theo Walcott did his cruise shoot do you remember where he skipped yeah. over a tackle and, and landed and his knee went and you know you could say it's down to fatigue but it could happen at any point during the season pre-season or anything like it I, I really think it's it's just unfortunate. Um, we are going to have to use the, the full extent of the squad. It is going to affect how well we play because players are going to be used in makeshift positions or maybe be asked to do jobs that they're not capable of doing. And the ability to rotate is restricted as well if you do have players out. So I think you're right. If you're not enjoying what you're seeing... Uh, simply in terms of results if you want more from the performances you might be disappointed but if we can if we can grind through these games and pick up the points then that's all that's all well and good for me i'm okay with that yeah that's what it's all about at this time of year just trying to get through the games rotate the squad try and keep everybody fit you know it's not just rub holding we've lost i know that's the long term one but we've seen Aaron Ramsey have a problem. We've seen Mustafi have a problem. There are Meza Ozil as well. There are starting to be, you know, fitness niggles within the squad. And that's yeah. just a, a consequence of how much football we've already had to play. That's only going to get more intense. So it's all about squad management and picking up the points. And in that respect, this was uh, a decent start. I think we're going to come on to it in part two. But the, there's a squad management question for Emery uh, this week because yeah. he's got obviously the Carabag game and then Southampton on Sunday. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how, how he deals with that yeah for sure and I guess we just uh, wish Rob Holding uh, all the uh, best with his recovery speedy recovery and hopefully uh, he'll be back playing uh, quick as a flash but it will be it will be next season and uh, mm. you know he's young enough for that injury not to have any really long term consequences for him you know um, whereas it and I think he's done enough in the spell in the team to suggest that he will you know at least be part of Emery's plans when he comes back I mean it's clear the manager likes him it's clear he has a yeah. lot of faith in him. And and I think these days, you know, I know it's a very serious injury, but people do recover and people do come back from these ligament problems in a way that they, they didn't 10 or 20 years ago necessarily. So yeah. uh, I'm full of optimism for him. He's on a long-term contract. I think he's made a big, big impact this season. Um, it doesn't change that we've got a problem to solve in the short term, but I think Rob Holding... You know, he's got a very, very bright future at Arsenal indeed. For sure, for sure. Um, OK, well, look, you know, that's that, I think, a good day. A good day. Is, it was hard work, but sometimes it is hard work. And, you know, the players won't be thinking too much about anything other than three points. We got three points. It keeps the unbeaten run going. It keeps the confidence high. You know, it, it 
it tells them that they can win games like this as well because they are hard to win games like this at times. You know, just finding that breakthrough, being relentless enough, being uh, showing enough character and spirit and all those kind of things to keep going. You know, I, I think there was a, you know, there's a fair bit of positivity to take from that. So a good day, um, despite the injuries, but we will, and suspensions, we will touch on that in, in part two. I suppose the other thing to point out from the weekend is that Manchester City lost. So that's good. They did. That's good. Yes. Yeah. I haven't done any invincible crowing yet because, of course, there is still an unbeaten team in this Premier League. Yeah. Although I, I'm a lot less worried about them going the distance than I was City, to be fair. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, you know, if you had to put some money on a team doing it, it would be City and not Liverpool. And of course, we have a chance to uh, to make sure it happens in a, a couple of weeks' time when we face them at, at Anfield. So that would be uh, that would make uh, the run up to the new year very nice indeed. If we could make sure that the uh, the Invincibles record remains intact for another year, and of course, take three points at Anfield, that would be lovely. I'd, I'd be uh, oh. I'd be very happy with that. Any, Me too. Uh, Lovely late Christmas present. Exactly. Anything else from the weekend you want to touch on before we go to part two? Only, I suppose, just to say amidst all the bad news about Rob Holding, how good it was to see Nacho Monreal back on the pitch and yeah. Lauren Koscielny warming up on the sidelines. I thought he was going to come on, actually, at one point. Yeah. Um, I think he did as well. There was a bit of confusion on the touchline there. But, I, you know, amidst all the, the injury worries, particularly at the back, uh, it's particularly good to see them on the way back to, to fitness. Absolutely. Very timely. Very timely. All right, we will take a break. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, but not today because I forgot to post on Facebook. So sorry, Facebook people. All the questions today come from Twitter. Do you want to go first or will I go first? I mean, I've got one here about uh, central defenders and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, do that because I okay. think, you know, that's top of everyone's agenda. Okay, this comes from Sam, who's at Silicon Shogun. And he says, with what is now a desperate shortage of centre-backs for the Southampton game, how do you see Emery setting up for both that fixture and Carabag in midweek? And there was another one uh, simply from Paul Thomas, 
who's at Thomas U14, who says, who plays in defence versus Southampton. So there you go. Have at it. Solve the problem, James. Right. Well, Carabag, I think, is almost a game that needs to be treated in isolation. Uh, I mean, you know, we had a couple of questions people about the lineup for Carabag. Jonas82 said, what's your preferred lineup for the Carabag game? I think it's a bit like the last Europa League game where, you know, it's going to be a, a very weakened team. One or two senior players, maybe not even one or two. You know, I think if he can get out a, a lineup of mm. kids and spare everybody, he will. I mean, you know, and I think it'll be about four because I think that's easier for him to play with those players. You know, he, he managed it in the Ukraine with Jenkinson alongside Holding, of course, um, which who won't be able to play. But I think Koscielny will play in that match, actually. Do you? Uh, Do you? Because a number of people, I, a couple I of people asked... Will. A couple of people asked, hang on, I'll just get the, the questions up that, here. Yeah. So just to give them a shout out. Uh, bum, bum, bum. Who is it? Uh, Khalil Kierans says, uh, Socrates should play on Thursday as he misses the Southampton game anyway. But should we give 45 or 60 minutes to Koscielny and Monreal so they're a bit more match fit for the weekend? And he suggests a back three of Lichtsteiner, Koscielny and Monreal. The weird thing about it is, isn't it, that the more injuries we have to our central defenders, the more a back three becomes the best option to sort of offset the mm. fact that we don't have natural central defenders yeah. because we don't have Socrates holding or, or Mustafi. So a back three becomes a bit more secure to offset some of that. But, you know, at the same time, you're you're short on numbers because of the players that are missing. Yeah, I think there's a curious thing going on in the shape of the squad and the balance of the squad where it sometimes looks like we're at our best with three central defenders, um, but we don't necessarily have... The central enough central defenders to make that opponent part of the squad, and then it sometimes looked like we we're at our best with two strikers on the pitch, mm. but we don't necessarily have the strikers to provide the depth and cover there. So, you know, I guess that's just the growing pains of Emery getting to grips with this squad and finding his preferred formation and having the personnel to fill it. I, I did say I thought Koscielny was going to play Thursday. The reason I say that is simply because it's been earmarked for him for a long time. Uh, and Emery's made that clear. You know, he was asked, was he available to play against Huddersfield? And he said, we, maybe not. We think the, the Europa League game could be a good game for him. And I would also be maybe a little bit loath to drop him into a Premier League game without mm. any top game time. You know, yeah. I think even if he played 45 minutes or an hour, you know, as, as Holding did in the Europa League game, played an hour, didn't he, and then came off. I think even that might be useful to him just to get up to speed. I hadn't contemplated the fact that you could play Socrates, of course, without him being available on Saturday. But I, I, yeah, I still think I would be tempted to give Koscielny a run out. Would you, what, wrap him in cotton wool and keep him for the weekend? Mm, It's a difficult one. It is a difficult one because he does need to get some playing time under his belt and some match fitness. I certainly wouldn't play him for 90 minutes. Hmm. And there's part of me that says I wouldn't play anyone of any importance whatsoever in this game. But I can see the logic of giving him some time. You know, it's, it's again, it's trying to weigh up the risk of what if something happens to him? We restrict our options even further. 
but also we do need him to be up to speed to play a Premier League game away from home against Southampton. It's not been an easy place for us to go down the years. So just giving him that extra bit of time on the pitch might help. So certainly an hour would make sense if you're if you feel like he really needs that. Like if he has to play against Southampton, I think he does because we don't have any other options. And Unai Emery thinks maybe physically he's not quite ready or he's not quite sharp enough. It would make sense to play him on Thursday. But it is a gamble. It is, however you want to look at it, a gamble if something happens to him or he picks up a little knock or gets a kick or whatever it is. But that's true of anyone. Anyone could just get a kick in any game or in training. So it's... Yeah. I I kind of feel like as well, like... If that happens on Thursday, then it was kind of going to happen on Saturday anyway. I sort of think we almost need to road test him. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, to yeah, see yeah. where yeah. he is physically. My, my team for Carabag would be something like check in goal. Mm-hmm. I'd play a back four of Jenkinson, uh, Socrates, Koscielny, Maitland, Niles, something like that. Um, who have I not, not used? Not Monreal. Uh, weirdly, I would maybe not play Monreal because I would probably have him in the team on Saturday and I feel like he's... Sunday. The ring rust isn't... Sunday, sorry. He's not quite as rusty as Koscielny. Yeah, you know, He's okay. been playing this season. And he played, of course, for you know a half hour, whatever it was, uh, against Huddersfield. Midfield, you've got uh, El Nenny, I'd say, is a guaranteed starter, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joe Willock, I suppose, will be involved. Ganduzi? Yeah, maybe I would play Ganduzi. So Elneny, Ganduzi, Willock, Willock. and then ahead of that... Smith-Rowe. Smith-Rowe and Ketia. And then maybe I'd play Mkhitaryan. Just because I feel like he's probably the least likely to be involved from the start of the weekend, and he could maybe do with a game a to help him game, yeah, to, to find some form. Um, yeah, if he doesn't find his form, maybe this is, you know, the kind of game he needs to play in anyway, because it's reflective of his form. Yeah. And if he comes finds some uh, sparks into life a bit, then all the better. So and. And with Koscielny, you know, maybe you give him half the game and you give Monreal half the game. Um, yeah. And, and that way they get a bit of a run out, but you're not putting too much strain on them. Um, and, you know, you're only really risking in first team terms uh, Ganduzi and Mkhitaryan in that lineup. And I'm not sure either man would be in my starting lineup for Southampton. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. That's not a bad team, I guess. Uh, okay. Well, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Um, we do have uh, Socrates and Mustafi out for the the game due to suspension. Lucas Torreira. So, what do you think about that? Do you think the back three is done for, or do you think we're going to see it at Southampton? I wouldn't be surprised if we saw it at Southampton, where we'd see something like uh, Bellerin, Licksteiner, Koscielny. Monreal and Kolasinac. That's what I... Yeah. Mm. Because I, I, I struggled to make a cohesive central defensive partnership. I know we could play Koscielny and Monreal and they have played together in a back four. But it just feels like because Koscielny's been out, because we might need to be 
cautious with him and also Monreal and not overburden them, that a little more defensive help from wingbacks and from Licksteiner in there as well might be the way to go. So, you know... I actually... I don't mind Licksteiner as a third centre-half. You know, I sort of feel more comfortable with him there than I do at fullback at times. Maybe it's just because there's a little bit less uh, kind of physical demand on him in yeah. that position. I um, thought he read the game quite well. There was a moment in the first half against Huddersfield where he, he chased back in and made a good interception to prevent some danger getting into our box. So, you know, his experience, his reading of the game, it's a position which should suit him well enough. You know, he doesn't have to do the same amount of running up and down the line as he would if he was playing fullback or wingback. And, you know, at 34 yeah. years of age, that's probably probably not a bad thing. You know, he's experienced enough to be able to play in there in the, in the short term, I think. I don't know that it's really a long-term solution, but um, under the circumstances, you'd feel confident that he won't get overly exposed there. Yeah, and, and actually, in terms of the other side of the pitch... I'm really intrigued to see if we stick with the back three, what we could do with the left-hand side with Monreal kind of bringing the ball out as the left-sided centre-half, Kolasinac overlapping. You know, you've got Shaka in there, you've got Iwobi as well, combining with Kolasinac and Monreal. I think that could be really quite potent for us. So I would definitely be interested to see that if we if we can make it work. Mm, okay, right. Here, uh, should on. we do another question? Oh, oh, yeah, you've yeah. Got no, question. no, 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 it's yours. I don't want to jump the gun. Go Thank ahead. You. Well, this is from um, Marlin H, who's at one Marlin H on Twitter, and she says she asks for your take on the three cards for diving, please. What was the hell? What the hell was that all about? Okay, well, I was going to ask you a question as well from Daniel mm-hmm. Prentice. He said, "I really hated the diving against Huddersfield. What were your thoughts on it? Just a weird game, or do you think it's a concern?" Okay, here's my take on it. The Jacka one, I think it's a foul. On Xhaka. I think it's a bog-standard foul in midfield that Xhaka anticipated. You see free kicks given for that, like, all the time. I don't know right. how that referee has decided that's a dive. Maybe he made a bit mu- uh, a bit too much of the, the fall, but I think it's a foul. I think, well, here's what I think. I think, first of all, that's the only one I've not seen on replay, so it's a little bit more difficult for me to gauge. But... I am very surprised that he was booked in that circumstance. Right. I think I think it probably it looked like a foul to me. And even if it's not a foul, it's more just a, well, you've gone to ground, but I don't deem it a foul. But I don't think that constitutes a dive necessarily. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I yeah, think yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. You, don't have to, you don't have to give a free kick, but to give a dive there I think is a, <laughs> yeah. a huge call. And I, for me, that one is not really a dive. Okay, the Mustafi one... In the slowest of all slow motion replays, you can see that his foot gets slightly kicked. I think. I'm not 100% convinced by it, but I think. To me, then, it's like the incident. Remember when Bellerin conceded a penalty to Hazard, where he slightly mm. kicked his foot and Hazard went down in the box, and everyone went, Well, he kicked him, it's a penalty. For me, that was that's the kind of simulation that the game has to try and stamp out where where this idea that any contact equals penalty. I don't believe that's the case. I think Mustafi maybe felt a bit of a kick and went over. I think that one is the most understandable of the three for me. Okay, I mean, yeah, I think that one probably is a dive. I mean, I've I've watched it and I think you're right. I think he does make contact with his boot. 
And I think that he feels that and goes to ground. But I think that's sort of indicative of the, the, the slight desperation there was about Arsenal's play for much of this game, where, you know, it didn't really look like we were capable of creating much. And I think Mustafi was, he was definitely looking for it. And I think if it was an opposition player, you wouldn't be happy with with what he's done there. No, you would want a yellow card and a dive for uh, for the for the opponent. If it happened in our box, certainly we'd all be going crazy. Yeah. Third one, I think yeah. it's a penalty. I think he catches him with his hip and it could easily have been a penalty. And I'll hold my hands up here and I'll say that late in the game, when Socrates shouldered their guy sort of in the back as they were chasing for the ball, I kind of thought that might have been a penalty as well. If you look at the replay of the Genduzi one, he goes beyond him, there's hip-to-hip contact, and he goes down. Again, I think he doesn't necessarily go down as well as he could have, and I'm not advocating (laughs) cheating here in any way. Right, I'm not advocating cheating. I'm just saying that it's one of those situations where we've seen penalties given plenty of times before, for us and against us. And I think perhaps Genduzi tried to make a bit more of the contact than there actually was. 50-50, it could easily have been a penalty. It could easily have been given as a dive. The referee decided it was a dive. But if you watch the replay, go to arsenalist.com and look at the the videos for this match and watch the slow-motion replay. There is definitely contact from Moy. I think it's Aaron Moy on Genduzi. Could easily have been a penalty for me. So I don't know that it was, you know, necessarily uh, uh, him trying to hoodwink the referee uh, and dive simply to get a penalty. Remember, it was the 79th minute and we were desperate for a goal as well. If the guy feels contact on his hip in the box and doesn't go down, people would be critical of that too. I think that's true. Like, and that, you know, that's... So I, I think a better diver gets a penalty there. <laughs> but I... But, no, no, a better, but I a better think, faller. A better faller, James. We don't, right, we don't dive, right. it's a fall. But I, for me, I think that one is a dive. Uh, basically, I agree there's hip-to-hip contact, but when you look at the way Genduzi moves, it feels a bit like it's contact that he initiates, like he kind of puts his like, thigh across almost. Yeah, uh, smart play, going into the box, getting the, yeah, the yeah, goal yeah, side. Yeah, I mean, basically what I think is, and it's sort of like an, it's sort of a snap judgment when you watch it, but when I watch Genduzi embark on that dribble... I think he's thinking penalty, and I think that informs yeah. what he does. Uh, I mean, I like Gunduzi as much as the next man, but also, like, what I like about him is I believe he is the kind of guy who would dive to win us the game, <laughs> and I sort of like that about him. Like, I, I really, I don't think it's, I don't think it's like the worst. You know, it's not a Tottenham level atrocity because there is contact, but yeah. I think it's. It's definitely looked for. Okay, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, let me put it. Let me put this to you. If we are, and I think we are, uh, for the most part, uh, enjoying the increased cynicism within this Arsenal team, 
right? The willingness to bend the rules, to make fouls, to frustrate the opposition, to take yellow cards in the opposition half, to prevent danger from getting into our half, not always, but uh, quite a lot more than we used to, is not falling, I see what you're falling here yeah. when you feel contact part of that as well. I I feel like if these incidents had played out, particularly that Genduzi one, and there had been contact and the guy had stayed on his feet, I'm sure as many people or more people who than were shocked and appalled by the diving would be saying, he's got to go to ground there. Yeah, yeah. He's got to he's go, gotta to go down. there. Got to go down. There's contact. You go know, down. He's been too honest. <laughs> he's been too honest. No one wants to be too honest, guys. Exactly. We're just scared of being too honest. Now, I know exactly what you mean, you know, that you can't embrace... You, if you embrace the kind of shithousing of Licksteiner and all that, then maybe this other, you know, you have to accept these dark arts as part of it. Uh, I think that's probably true, but I also think on another day, you're ahead by the 83rd minute and things aren't quite so desperate, you know. You want to, you want to get there on footballing merit first and foremost. Sure. Desperate times call um, for desperate measures, though, James. Well, exactly. You know, ask Robert Perez. I mean, you know, his most famous dive was absolutely required uh, at the against Portsmouth. You know, it was necessary at that point mm. in the game, um, and it it changed. You that, know, that was a the trajectory foul. of the that, team. That was a foul. Yeah. Oh, clear. I mean, they nearly <laughs> took his leg off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't know how he survived. But, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And to be honest, I don't get massively uh, upset by it. And and I don't get massively upset by it when it goes against us, if if I'm honest, because I sort of think it's part of the game and I if anything if my my irritation is sometimes with officials that they don't see it uh, but never really with the offending players unless they're sort of particularly awful. I mean, I'm thinking of the Gareth Bale years. Sure, exactly. But here's the thing. When we do stuff like that, I think it's all right. Yeah, sure, right? yeah, yeah. And when the opposition do it, I think they're absolute cunts. And that's the oh, way... Oh, I mean, so, you remember Son Heung-min, don't you, last season, <laughs> exactly. uh, last week? Well, that's, yeah. that is how my brain works. And I'm sorry, right. I can be objective. I can, if I want to be, but most of the time I don't because it just doesn't fucking suit me. I prefer mm. to... Hold us up as <laughs> paragons of virtue and for everybody else to be evil. I think it's easier that way. Um, I'm sitting here now and, I, you know, I can and I can judge all these things on their own merits, but it's just part and parcel of my bias, my inherent bias towards Arsenal and wanting Arsenal to win games. I will accept things from our players that I will absolutely, 100%, unquestionably, vociferously castigate opposition players for. And I make no apologies for it. I've done it my entire life. I will continue to do it. And that's it. People can live with it or not. That's what's going to (laughs) happen. You don't have to listen, guys. If you don't like it, that's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be. Cards are on the fucking table here, guys. That's how it is. (laughs) (laughs) One rule for the goose and one for the gander. No, I like it. I think that's a good way to go. And to be honest, that sort of cognitive dissonance, I think, is absolutely essential to being a football fan, isn't it? We are partisan, whatever we say. Exactly. It's not unique to me or you or to anyone listening or to fans of other clubs because, uh, you know, they all think the same way. They all think the same. 
same way. And fucking being magnanimous is all well and good, but sometimes it just sticks in your crawl, so fuck it. That's yeah. that's where I'm going with this one. Okay, I've got a question here from Angus Kwong, who's at Angus underscore underscore Kwong. He's got a double underscore there. Uh, uh, and he says... Are you worried by Ainsley Maitland-Niles' lack of appearances and seemingly stalled progress? Um, not enormously. However, I would say I maybe am slightly less uh, aboard the Maitland-Niles bandwagon than a lot of people on the internet. Okay. I mean, I I like Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I think he's quite good. But I think there was a sort of period last season where he was kind of imagined as the solution to our midfield without a great deal of evidence. Sort of like Mavropanos being the answer to our defence. That kind of... A little bit, yeah. And I sort of think the the arrival of Lucas Torreira to me, demonstrates, oh, look, that's the kind of midfielder we needed. And it's very possible that Maitland-Niles could be playing these games and having that sort of impact, but I'm not convinced that's true. Yeah. Um, I think he is a promising young player. I'm not saying I don't rate him. I think he's got a lot going for him. To be honest, one of the things that I really like about him is his versatility. And as much as everyone cries out for him to be given this chance central midfield, he's, you know, I think he's an incredibly useful squad player to have this guy who can play, you know, six positions or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that for his personal development, it probably would be good for him to play more football. And I think it's maybe a possibility that he might go on loan in the second half of the season. Mm. Just to, to I, I don't know. It depends, I suppose, what happens with our injury situation. But I am not alarmed by it. I sort of think... He's, he's kind of where he is. And when I look at someone like Genduzzi, you know, I've seen him do things in central midfield that I, on the few instances Maitland-Niles has played there, I don't think he's been at that level, mm. basically. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'm not worried by it. I just think circumstances have conspired against him to an extent because he got the injury uh, at the start of the season, playing at left-back, we should remember. So that that's hampered his progress a little bit. He's coming into or trying to get into a team that's on a 21-game unbeaten run as well. Mm. And when you look at the team lineups and you look at the team selections, uh, for, for our Premier League games in particular, because he has played in the, the Carabao Cup and he's played in the, the Europa League, when you look at the team selections that we've put out for the Premier League, has there been any game where you've thought, oh, Maitland-Niles should have started there? Maybe when we play Jack at a left-back, but I think he was only coming back from his injury at that point, so we yeah, weren't going to thrust him in. I don't think there's been any game where you're going, oh, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's a shame that we haven't picked Maitland-Niles or not picking Maitland-Niles was a bad, deci- a bad decision, right? So... I think his progress has stalled a little bit. I think the versatility you speak about is in many ways a positive, but in some ways it could be viewed as a negative in the way that we never quite figured out where Oxlade-Chamberlain was best. Perhaps there's Mm -hmm. an element of that going on. Uh, Ainsley or Unai Emery uh, played him as part of the front three in one of the Europa League games or the Carabao Cup game, I can't remember which which is an interesting development for a guy who was played at left-back. All of a sudden, he's been played as a as part of the, the front three. So I do wonder whether Unai Emery sees in him different qualities 
than Arsene Wenger did, who always said he was going to be a good defensive midfield player. He may well turn out to be, but who do you pick him ahead of? You don't pick him ahead of Xhaka. You don't pick him ahead of Genduzi at the moment. You don't pick him ahead of Lucas Torreira. So how is he going to play in there? So I don't think there's anything alarming about it. I just think it's, it is what it is. And it'll be interesting to see how he reacts to it. If he gets his head down and works hard and fights for his place and performs, that's the challenge that's ahead of him now. And it's yeah. it's part and parcel of football. It may well go his way. It may well not. And, you know, we'll find out in due course. But I don't think there's anything weird about it. No. And I mean, I mentioned that he might go out on loan. And while I think that would be good for him, I think it's always tempting to keep him around, isn't it? Just because of how much cover he offers in so many different positions, mm. how many solutions he provides. In some ways, I think the best thing that could happen for him is maybe the sale of Mohamed Elneny. Uh, if if that were to happen at some point in the next think, six months, I mean, that might open up some opportunities for him in central midfield. Maybe, but I mean, Elneny hasn't played in the Premier League this season, you know? So there's True. another, you know, all he would do is take Elneny's place as the guy who doesn't play. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a t- it's a tough one. It's a tough one for him. It's a tough situation for him. But, you know, he's going to have to wait. And if he gets a chance, he's going to have to take that chance. Because who knows, you know, what doors open for players. Uh, You know, what looks like a really difficult situation for a player now in three or four weeks' time with a couple of injuries and a couple of suspensions, all of a sudden it becomes an opportunity. And it's whether or not he's ready to take that opportunity if and when it comes. So that's it. He's a squad player. Go on. I was just going to say, thinking about the, the system, if the back three sticks around in in the sort of mid-term and there are games when we over Christmas want to give Hector Bellerin a game off I, I would really like to see Maitland-Niles as a right wing back I think you know when you look at his athleticism the fact that he's played as a winger this season and in the past with Ipswich I think he could be really excellent in, in that in that position so you know you won't want to play better in every game and if we were sticking with a back three I'd probably rather see Maitland-Niles as a, an overlapping wing back than I would Licksteiner mm. Yeah, I mean he does have the he does have the qualities to to play in that position. We've seen him play it on the left-hand side so there's no reason at all why he can't play it on the right-hand side where he's more naturally uh more naturally suited to us and I think he would mm. give us more uh, for 90 minutes, perhaps, than Licksteiner can uh, at 34 years of age, you know, getting up mm-hmm. and down the pitch. So, look, I, you know, you can't um, close the door on him or anything like that. Uh, you know, let's see what happens. There's, there's a lot of football to play this uh, season. There's a lot of football to play in the next four or five weeks, you know, with FA Cup coming up as well. And if we get through the game against Tottenham, then there'll be two Carabao Cup games in January. I think the semi-finals are two legs. So if we get through that game against Tottenham, then, you know, there's loads of football to play and loads of chances for him to uh, to impress. I think he'll play on uh, Thursday against Carabao. Yep. So let's see how it goes for him. So a couple of questions here about uh, everyone's favourite Uruguayan midfield terrier, Lucas Torreira. Mm-hmm. Um, S-I, S-A, rather, who's at Guna SA 1981, said he scored two delicious goals in the last three games, but is having the nominally defensive Torreira so far up the field a worrying sign? What sets him apart from the likes of Song or Cochlan, who would abandon the post so often? Not hating on him, just cautious. And then another note of caution from at East Lower, who says there are a couple of reducer tackles on Torreira on Saturday. Now that everyone's worked out how good he is, will that become more systematic? Yes, I think it will. I think it will. You know, you you look at any top player 
any really effective player and they get fouled a lot. It's like Hazard mm-hmm. at Chelsea and you know Messi at Barcelona. How do you try and stop Messi? Through defending? Doesn't seem anyone can do that. So you foul him. Um, it happens to good players all the time. That's why I really enjoyed Lichtsteiner's re- reaction to that foul on Torreira because I think it was important you know, that if we stood passively by and watched a guy come through the back of Lucas Torreira, other teams will say, well, fuck, might as well give that a go because he is so good um, that, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to protect him. But if you know you're going to get the, um, the fury as much as that counts for anything, but just the idea that the players will stick up for each other, um, it, it will be a worry, though. I do think it is something that is it is going to happen to him. Um he has come not out of nowhere, but you know he's made a big impact in a very short space of time. A player that you know before the summer, not too many people knew anything about, and right now, when you think about it in Premier League terms, is probably the best signing of the season that anyone has mm. made, that any team has made. I can't think of anyone who's come in and had uh, that much of an impact on their team this season. Can you? I don't think so. The only name that uh, springs to mind potentially, I don't even think he's been that good individually, but when you look at their defensive record, Alisson maybe at Liverpool has you know, yeah. got okay. has kept a lot of clean sheets. That's but, fair I enough. Mean, uh, That's apart a, from a that, £60 I mean, million pound signing versus a £26 yeah. million pound signing as well. So, um, yeah. so yeah, look, it is it is something we'll have to contend with, and that's just a fact of football life. Um, as for the other question... I don't think he is necessarily just a defensive midfielder. You spoke about no. the chances that he had, the quality he has. You know, the, the he can hit the dead ball as well. He can take free kicks. He likes a shot on goal. He's got a good range of passing. He's incisive with his passing. He's creative with his passing at times as well. I think there was one brilliant pass, wasn't there, for... Was it... What goal was it? At Newcastle, the Lacazette one where he blasted it into the top corner, was that the the winner at Newcastle? Maybe. Maybe. I can't quite remember. But it was just a little ball down the channel, I think, and Lacazette finished, or somebody finished anyway. You know, he's got he's got more to his game than just tackling and winning the ball and being combative in, in our half of the pitch. There's a lot more to him than that. So... Are you doing yourself a disservice if you don't use the full range of his talents? If you ask him just to sit back and just be a snappy terrier-like ball winner, are you not denying yourself and the team qualities which are important? You know, ultimately, his goal won us the game on Saturday because where was he? Just outside the fucking six-yard box because he's got some attacking instincts. And not only attacking instincts, but the, the the technical quality to finish that the way that he did. Same with the game against Tottenham. You know, he sealed yeah. that game for us. So it's all well and good saying he should sit back and he should be more defensively minded. You can point to the Bournemouth game where it didn't work out and he was the highest man up the pitch and we were exposed on the break. Not that I'm saying it was all his fault, but it was one of those occasions where people say he's got to sit back, he gives us more, blah, blah, blah. But he does have an impact, and a positive impact. You know, if it's 3-2 against Tottenham and somehow they get a goal back, uh, you know, and make it 3-3, and we draw that game, and then he doesn't go forward and we draw the game against Huddersfield at home, that's 
for, you know, three points less, is it? It is three points less because we'd have, yeah. Two, no, hang on a second. What's going on it's, here? It's less points. It's, it's less points. It's fewer points. Yeah. Fewer, yeah. Hang on. So I, I, uh, one point, two points, two points. It'd be four points less. Oh, Me do maths. So many points. Quick maths. I think that, yeah, look, I mean, look, when we talk about some of the best defensive midfielders in our recent history, we mention people like Patrick Vieira, Gilberto Silva. These guys popped up and scored really important goals for Arsenal. Uh, you know, I mean, they they were complete midfielders in some ways. And I think, if anything, they were able to break forward and have that impact because of the understanding and the partnership that they had with each other. And I think that's what we need from Torreira and Xhaka. We're not asking one to sit for the entire 90 minutes and one to play further ahead. We're asking for that trust and that understanding that sometimes one goes and the other can hold. And I think we are actually starting to see that develop. Uh, Torreira was playing a more advanced role at the weekend, as discussed, because there was, you know, with no number 10, there was a need for him to break forward. There was a need for Ginduzi to break forward. Yeah. But I think when Torreira and Shaka sit deep alongside each other, you know, it's it's not realistic and it's not... Right, that they just have to sit on the halfway line for the entire game. Uh, that's not what midfield plays about. I think it's just about having balance and and being uh, appropriate with the times you do it. And it's quite difficult, with the exception of that Bournemouth goal, to criticise when Torreira has chosen to break forward. He seems to have done it at the right time on almost every occasion. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So you know, let's let's not. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I think it's got the word box in it. Let's not just put him in the one box. He needs to sure. be in many boxes. We need to make chop him up and put him in various boxes. That's what I'm saying. Rather than Don't one big box. Put him box, in a box. Yeah. Yeah. Put him in a load of little boxes because he can be good over here, over there in a box and good over there in a box. Well, he's box to box. There it is. There it is. Someone should coin that phrase. <laughs> Someone should coin that phrase. Uh, have you got any more? Uh, I've got a couple more. Go on. I, I enjoyed this one. This was from John A. Ladavia. I hope I pronounced that right or close enough. And John says, saw the match with my friends at the Blind Pig in New York. But I'm sure you've been there. Yeah. Uh, during SantaCon. What the fuck is what Santa? What a shit show. The pub was filled up afterwards with all the obnoxious Santas you could imagine. SantaCon is like a Santa conference. No, I guess. hang on. I'm just doing it. SantaCon. I've Googled it here. Okay. It's actually not. You see, that's the thing. I would have thought that if it was a Santa conference, you would have lots of genial old bearded men. Oh, it's a pub crawl. But SantaCon is an annual pub crawl in which people dressed in Santa Claus costumes parade in several cities around the world. That sounds fucking terrible. That and, and sounds... John's question... Anyway, was what was this got me thinking? What's was your worst game day experience, either at the stadium or out watching a match? God, I can't remember. I mean, that does sound bad, doesn't it? The Santa thing. I mean, yeah. a load of pissed up Santas. At least they're in red and white. That's the one consolation. Yeah, even that though, I feel like they're 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 misrepresenting what's great about red and white by being assholes. They have a thing here. It's sort of died down over the years, but there's a thing called the 12 pubs of Christmas that they do here. And again, it's a pub crawl and people start in one pub and they go from one pub to another pub to another pub, taking in 12 pubs, having a drink in each pub. As you can imagine, 
by the end, most people are absolutely wankered beyond belief. And many pubs now just won't let those people in. They're usually really easy to spot, though, because they're all wearing zany Christmas jumpers with lights on them or Rudolph noses that light up and all that kind of stuff. So those people are easy to spot and to ban from the pub, as are a lot of really drunk Santa Clauses. So I think Mm. it's incumbent on the establishments, the drinking emporiums, to say, look, fuckers, Get the fuck out of here. You're dressed as Santa. What the fuck is wrong with you? You're a grown adult. Are you going to work in a shopping center and pretend to be Santa to make a child's life better? Did you see that story during the week where a man in America, it could have been Florida, I apologize if it's not Florida, but somewhere in America, was going around a Christmas grotto in a a shopping mall shouting, there's no such thing as Santa Claus. It's all a lie. Santa's not real. What a oh cunt. That's a bit mean, isn't yeah, it? that's awful. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. I mean, he should be made to go to SantaCon every year as punishment. Yeah, he should be a SantaCon designated driver, so he has to take lots of vomiting Santas home in his own car as they throw up shots of Jägermeister down his back and stuff. Um, my worst match day experience, just for the record, was as a child, I must have been about seven or eight, I was told I was going to watch uh, Arsenal versus Tottenham and I was really excited about it. And then it emerged that we were sat in a Tottenham supporters box uh, at White Hart Lane. Right. And uh, even as like an eight-year-old, I found it a scarring and disturbing experience. It was like being, you know, a sort of cult ceremony that you're not part of. Absolutely horrific. Yeah. Did we win the game? I don't even remember. So... So I, I assume you, not. I think if we had won it, it would be a really positive memory. So you were eight. What year would that Something have been? Something like that. Mm, we're talking early 90s, 94. Okay. I'm just going to get the head-to-head up here between Arsenal and Tottenham. A white hard line. Let's see if we can bring back this Let's memory for you, Let's see if it was 94, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So 1994 Premiership. Oh, Okay. Well, there was a game in the in 1995. Was it January? Can you remember if it was January? Was it Christmas I time? Let, let's say it was January, just to sort of... So there was know, a game in, in the 1994-95 season, but didn't, didn't take place till the 2nd of January, 95. So Arsenal and Tottenham didn't play each other at all in 1994, because right, both games... Yeah, and what happened in the January 95 We game? lost... Popescu yeah. scored a goal, 1-0. Sounds about right. Mm. Sounds about right. Had you been there the year before, you would have enjoyed an Ian Wright winner at White Hart Lane no, in, the, would, in the 87th minute. I would remember minute. that. think you probably I would. I remember that. Yeah, I think, think you probably so. would. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that sounds about right, 1-0 to Spurs, yeah. So that was pretty agonising. I can't remember, oh. like, a really terrible match day experience... Either I mean, a lot of the ones at the Emirates last season were pretty bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess it means, you know, something equivalent to a load of pissed-up Santas coming along and ruining everything, and I can't yeah. really remember anything well, during that, apart from being you. at a, again, being at a 
North London derby where we were 2-0 up and ended up losing 3-2 at home. That was a Oof. that was a bad one. That was a bad one. Yeah. But that was to do with fucking Santas on the pitch being drunk assholes rather than actual yeah. other Santas. Um, that's it. I'm out of questions. Did you say you had one more or is that it? No, that's me. That's me, Dan. That's it. Okay. Well, I think we've had a good go at it. I think we have. I think we have. We've uh, we've righted the wrongs of the diving and everything else. Uh, we can look forward to the game against Carabag on Thursday, Southampton on Sunday. Hope that no more of our defenders get injured because... Uh, we're on uh, we're on bare bones or we're down to bare bones as it is. Yeah. As ever, folks, thank you very much indeed for listening. Feel free to give us a rating or review on iTunes. We'd like that a lot. I think what we should oh, do. Love it. Here's what we should do, actually. You know what we should do? What? We should get some goodly morning t-shirts made up. That's what yeah. I think. Get some goodly morning t-shirts made up. And we'll give them away as prizes for people who leave the the best, most entertaining review on iTunes for us. How about that? We can do that. that. We can give them away well, as prizes. What about prizes. a mug? A mug. Yeah, we could do mugs as well. The problem with mugs is that they take a more difficult to, to, yeah, post. to post and send. And yeah. you have to get like yeah. 50,000 mugs made. You can't put a mug through a letterbox. No, it's a nightmare. Exactly. You can squash oh, t shirts into a mug. We'll stick to t shirts. We'll get that done. We'll get some Goodly Morning t shirts done up to give away for iTunes reviews and other bits and pieces as well. So uh, in the meantime, until we do get them made up, uh, feel free to leave a review. We can go back over some old ones as well, I think. Uh, and and hand out some what's the word I'm looking for here some prizes for things that happened in the past what do you call that what do you call that retrospective retrospective exactly we'll do that Um, we'll have an arse cast on Friday of some description anyway because we're playing late on Thursday night but we'll get something out for you on Friday thanks as ever we'll catch you on the next one bye bye Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.